Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church Podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rcc.church. Welcome. My name is John. Um, I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here, and we are in a three-week series of messages talking about where we believe God is leading us for uh, the year to come. And last week, I told you that our church exists to glorify God by making disciples who are being restored. And what we want to do this week is take that idea that is foundational to what we are trying to accomplish and wrestle with what may be the single most important question for any local church to grapple with, and that is the simple question of how do you do that? Um, How is it that we go about this work of making disciples, right? You may remember that last week I said, you know, by way of trying to explain the simplicity of this idea, if Ford makes cars, the church of Jesus makes disciples, or the church makes disciples of Jesus. And I hope that analogy was helpful, but today I want to talk about where I think that analogy might break down, right? If you were to go talk to the people at Ford, they would be able to tell you how they make cars. Be able to do it with varying levels of specificity depending on their role, but they would be able to tell you. I don't always know that if you talked to the people at church, they would be able to do the same, right? That they would be able to say, here it is, here's how we go about this work of making disciples. And that's by no means to like guilt or shame anybody in the room. It's more to reflect on the fact that the church has grappled with this question um, probably over centuries. And what I want to do today is really three different things. Number one, I want to walk us through our foundational understanding as a church of how disciples are made. We're going to do that admittedly at a like 35,000 foot, maybe a 42,000 foot level today, because I also want to leave space to talk about what that is going to look like for us as a church in the year ahead, and finally create some space just to invite you to consider what all of that is going to look like for you personally. So we're going to try to cover a lot of territory and move quickly in various pieces. But if you were to ask what our foundational understanding is, of how it is that disciples are made, I would tell you that discipleship happens at the intersection of presence, formation, and mission. Those three words, those three ideas are not only central to what we are going to study out of the Word of God today, they are essential to understanding what it is that we are trying to be about as a church. Presence, formation, and mission. And even the way I have defined that begins to make some things clear about our understanding of discipleship. Um, I hope it is immediately clear that we do not consider discipleship to be a department of the church. Discipleship is the mission of the entire church. Discipleship is not an optional part of the spirit of the spiritual life for those who desire to become spiritually 
elite. Discipleship is the essence of the Christian life. I do not believe that you can reduce discipleship to a specific program, to any one curriculum, or even to a particular kind of relationship. And I'm probably thinking most about one-on-one mentoring relationships. Discipleship, rather than being a program or a curriculum, is a lifelong process that encompasses and then shapes every area of our life. Discipleship is not just about information. Discipleship is about transformation. And we believe that all of that happens at the intersection of presence, formation, and mission. So let's just talk quickly about each one of those three things, starting with presence. One of the ways that you could tell the story of Scripture is by tracing this thread of God's presence from literally Genesis chapter 1 all the way through the end of the book of Revelation, right? Scripture tells the story of a God who was uniquely present to his creation from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 lays that idea out. And God and Adam and Eve were in each other's presence habitually until sin destroyed the entire thing and shattered this intimacy between creator and created, right? Genesis 3, 8, and they heard, they being Adam and Eve, after they have eaten the fruit, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Talk about maybe the ultimate expression of presence. God would come and take a walk with Adam and Eve. Yet now, because of sin, the man and his wife hid themselves. They had this sense of guilt, this sense of shame, this sense that they didn't belong in the presence of God, that the presence of God, this holiness that radiated from Him was somehow now incompatible with the choice that they had made. So they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Right? We call this the fall. We call this the moment from which the world departed from God's plan. It's the reminder that you and I live in a world that is not as God intended it to be. And you know many of us, the result of this is that Adam and Eve are forced out of the garden. And then you can tell so much of the story of the Old Testament, of this struggle on behalf of the people of God to get back into the presence of God that they had forfeited in the garden. Right? Whether that presence was in a tent of meeting or in the bread of the presence, whether that presence was in a tabernacle or in a temple, so much of what Israel is doing is living out this sense that we were designed to live and we thrive and we flourish and our life makes sense when we are intimately connected with God. What can we do to get back into the presence of God? Right? It's Moses when he gets one request from God, praying, show me your glory. Let me see the full beauty of who you are. And God's saying, you can't quite handle that, but I'll hide you in the rock and I'll hide you behind my hand and I'll pass by and you can see just the, the tail end of the whole thing. It's the sons of Korah crying out, better is one day in your presence than a thousand elsewhere. It is this heart cry of the people of God. We just want to be with the one who created us. Yet it seems like no matter what Israel did, they could never quite get it right because at the end of the day, what we figured out was that we would never be able to work our way back fully into the presence of God. 
that God would have to come and He would have to die for us so that we could be with Him forever. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh, that's Jesus, and He dwelt among us. We've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus said, you're never going to be able to work your way to me, so I'll just come to you, and I will dwell among you, and I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself, so that we will enjoy the presence of God for all eternity. I'm saying this to remind all of us that ours is a faith of both experience and encounter. That our understanding of discipleship is one that rests on the reality that we become like Jesus by being with Jesus. Right? In the same way that you become more like somebody that you hang out with habitually. Have you ever noticed that? Like the people that you spend time with, it matters. You start to pick up some of their language. You start to pick up some of their mannerisms. You start to pick up some of their interests. The same thing works spiritually, that as we spend time with Jesus, we become like Jesus. And it is a reminder, though, that our hope of transformation, that our hope of discipleship is about more than just chronological maturity. We are seeking supernatural transformation, right? By chronological maturity, what I mean is I would hope by the time you're like 45, your life looks different than it did at 25. Like, whether you follow Jesus or not, if you're at 45, you're like, no, man, pretty much hasn't changed. I'm like, I would think about that. I would pray about that. It's probably time to sell the Xbox, get out of mom's basement, and get on with life, right? That makes sense. But sometimes we just settle for sort of the chronological maturation process and give God all the glory. But what we are after is more than that. We are after something that feels miraculous, something that feels supernatural, something that feels inexplicable, where we're like, look, somehow the Spirit of God is doing something in me as I learn to linger in the presence of God in prayer and in worship. And we'll say more about that in a minute. But one of the axes that shapes our understanding of discipleship is the presence of God. We're changed as we linger with God in prayer and in worship. But then you have to add in a discussion of formation, which is a word that we use around here a lot. And we do so without apology. But I do want to take the opportunity to make sure you understand that I don't believe that the word formation is just a trendy way of saying discipleship. Although that's probably how I hear it used most commonly. Right? I also don't think it is sufficient to say that, well, formation is just a unique approach to discipleship that you know, really takes both spiritual and emotional health seriously, although there is some truth to that understanding. At the end of the day, what I want to argue and what I want you to know about the way we use that word is I don't use the word formation as a synonym for discipleship. Formation is an essential component of discipleship, and it is designed to make a unique contribution to this project of becoming like Jesus. 
one of the people who speaks more articulately than anybody else about the essence of spiritual formation is a Christian philosopher named Dallas Willard. Here's how he would describe spiritual formation. He says this, that spiritual formation in the tradition of Jesus Christ is the process of transformation. Notice the end goal. It's the process of transformation of the innermost dimension of the human being, the heart, which is the same as the spirit or will. It is being formed, really transformed, in such a way that its natural expression comes to be the deeds of Christ done in the power of Christ. Formation is where we deal with the innermost dimension of who we are. Formation is where we remind ourselves that we are not simply about information, nor are we about willpower and forcing ourselves to just do things that we feel like we're supposed to do as followers of Jesus. Formation is where we say, oh, come Holy Spirit and change me at the innermost level of who I am. Formation is about this deep inner work of God that transforms our lives by transforming our hearts. The Apostle Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Right? I used to read that in my 20s and be like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then in my mid-40s, I'm like, I think I know what you're starting to talk about here. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Formation is also about our active participation in that transforming work. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Right? So if you have an understanding of discipleship where it's just this purely passive enterprise where you just somehow sit back and are like, zap me, Holy Spirit. Just do your thing. Turn me into a person of love and I'll just be here waiting. That's not Paul's understanding. He's like, oh yeah, we're changed as we linger in the presence, but there is obviously an active participation as we train ourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, keep going to the gym, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is formation that draws us into the essence of the tension that we see in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, here's the key part, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right? If presence calls us to linger with God in prayer and worship, formation calls us to open up the Scripture to open up our lives to one another, and to build our lives around a system of rhythms and practices and disciplines that enable us to be active participants in our transformation, all the while knowing that while we're working it out, we're really working it out because it's God who's at work inside of us. Right, again, we'll come back to this in a minute, but I want to get the third axis into the conversation which is mission. And I think one of the best ways to clarify what I mean by mission is by doing just a teeny bit of church history. Um, in the early 20th century, 
And everybody would agree with this. No matter where you are on the theological spectrum, everybody would agree with this, that in the early part of the 20th century, there was a massive split between what we would call now uh, liberal Protestantism and more conservative evangelical expressions of Protestantism. Some will call it the liberal fundamentalist split, but there was a sort of seismic event that happened in the life of the church in the early 20th century, basically over how to respond to changing technology and some intellectual currents in Europe and um, information. There's a lot that happened, and, and the split has been disastrous really for both camps. Um, but one of the ways that you saw that is that liberal Protestantism focused much more on social justice. They're all about changing the world, feeding the poor, caring for immigrants and refugees, making the world a better place, but it seemed like what became the liberal wing of the church let go of the gospel. Right? And did it with absolutely disastrous results, right? Um, churches that have abandoned the authority of Scripture, that have abandoned the inerrancy of Scripture, that have abandoned the exclusivity and the divinity of Jesus, it has been a bleak story for them, and it's only going to get progressively bleaker. On the other hand, conservative churches held very tightly to the gospel, right, preached good doctrine, but increasingly walled themselves off from the need of the world. So what we're going to do is huddle together in doctrinally precise gatherings and have our little Bible studies, but man, we're not going to dirty our hands with the problems around us. And it turns out that both sides were wrong. That's why we talk so much here about God's mission in terms of God's kingdom. Because when we talk about the kingdom of God, we are reminded that you and I are absolutely called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? This work of personal conversion, this work of personal salvation is part and parcel of the mission of God. Yet, we are also called to contend for the good of our city. We are called to do good works so that people will glorify our Father in heaven. We are called to roll our sleeves up and invest in our community, not just so that we can have an excuse to tell people about Jesus, but to do that work because Jesus loves people. Right, that we are engaged deeply in the world and we are engaged deeply in the gospel. Right? I'm going to try to tie all this together in a minute, but here's the main point that I want to make today. If you want to live as a disciple of Jesus, you have to live at the intersection of presence, formation, and mission. Because here's what normally happens. People usually grab onto one of those. Right? It's the one that they feel most comfortable with. Maybe the one that even reflects the tradition that they grew up in. They're like, okay, look, I'll just be the mission person. Right? I'm going to go reach the whole world for Jesus, and you know, well, somebody else in the church can do the presence thing, and somebody else can do the formation thing. I'm just going to go reach everybody. And that person always ends up spiritually malformed. Right? Because you're not meant to just grab onto presence and be like, you know what, I'll just be a contemplative and I don't care about the world. I'll just do my thing and in the spirit will just be off in a corner doing our thing, but I'm not going to worry about what's happening with other people in my neighborhood. It's like, no, 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 no. 
As a church, we need to live at the intersection of presence, formation, and mission, but each of us individually needs to live there. Right? And, and, and what I'm arguing is that when we can hold those three things together, that's where discipleship happens. Now, let me see if I can flesh that out a little bit for us in terms of the year ahead. Um, I've said it a couple of times, but in terms of presence, um, the way we live that out most specifically is through prayer and worship. I think most of you know at this point, but if you don't, um, Dan Kaiser, who we first got connected to as kind of like a guest worship leader, ultimately over the summer um, applied for a 12-month residency that we had established. So Dan is going to be a part of our staff team for at least the next year, and half of what we have asked Dan to focus on is leading our congregation in worship. And then we didn't ask him to do that um, because we felt like there was anything deficient about those that were leading worship. We certainly didn't ask him to do it under this like, hey, can you come here and make Sunday better or anything like that? We said, man, we just need to put more attention around creating spaces where we are able to linger in prayer and in worship, which obviously means Sunday morning, but it also means increasing our capacity to do regular prayer and worship nights, which are going to become a part of our communal rhythm over the year to come as we learn what it looks like to encounter God in song, through His Word, in prayer, and as we take communion together right? We do a weekly prayer meeting backstage every single Sunday. And again, that's not just for leaders and those who want to see themselves as spiritually elite. You are all invited, right? It is a beautiful time to be with God in His presence, right? That's not all we have planned um, for the year to come in terms of presence. Again, congregational meeting tonight, I'll be able to go into even more detail, but I just want to give you a flavor of what some of this looks like, give you a flavor of the things that we intend to prioritize, and I hope the things that you intend to prioritize. Um, I want to do the same with formation. When we talk about formation, there is absolutely a teaching component like to think that we do a little formation here on Sunday morning. As we offer classes, that is an exercise in formation. The books that you read, the podcasts that you listen to, right now media, Bible studies, all of it is an act of formation. But here's what I hope you hear me say. At its core, formation is relational. At its core, formation is communal, not individual. It's not about you getting alone in a library. It's about getting all of us in relationships that enable us to love, serve, care for, and spur one another on in this project of becoming more like Jesus. Theologians, psychologists, sociologists, everybody agrees with the fact that as a human being, you are an inherently relational creature. Theologians don't have to go any further than Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God says, let us, plural, first reference to the Trinity in Scripture, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That is the first place in Scripture where we see this sense that we are inherently relational beings made in the image of a relational God, and there is no way around the reality that we need each other to become like Jesus. 
Which is why I'm praying that some of you will get connected to a community group this week. That if you've yet to take that step, you, you won't see that as just a program that we offer to give you something to do on a random night of the week. My assumption is you already have more than enough to do every night of the week. I don't think you're bored. I don't think you're you know, searching for things to do. But I think we all need to create spaces where we're able to come together with brothers and sisters and essentially, in all kinds of different ways, shapes, and forms, wrestle with the question that John Wesley would start to ask his small groups when they would meet together. They would ask the simple question, how is it with your soul? And they just see where God would lead the conversation from there. I understand that may feel a little touchy-feely, but I hope over the course of the year that will start to feel like bedrock component of your life with God, that there are other people that you sit with regularly who care for the inner reality of what's going on. Formation is relational. Formation is also generational, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament is called the Shema. It's a statement that the Lord God is one. It's this great monotheistic text of the Bible. It would have been familiar to every Jewish man, woman, and child. Because as soon as the Shema is given, Deuteronomy 6, 7, this is the follow-up. You shall teach this diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. There was this impulse of saying, hey, parents, you are the ones who are primarily responsible for the spiritual formation of your children. There is this call to raise up the next generation of followers of Jesus. Psalm 145 verse 4 says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. That's what they're doing in kids right now. They're not just keeping them busy so that we can enjoy church and feeding them a couple of goldfish to keep them happy and quiet back there. They're commending the work of God one generation to the next. They're saying, hey, this Jesus is more fascinating than you could ever believe. Hey, you want to follow this God. It is a deeply formational work. And it is work that those of us who have the privilege of being parents are confronted with every single day. But it is work that we are all invited to participate in. Right? You've heard us say for a couple of weeks now that we desperately need to open a fourth classroom in RCC Kids. We're two volunteers away from being able to do that. And everybody asks, what are you going to do if we don't get there? And I'm like, I don't know. We need to get there. Like, we just need to make that happen for the sake of the kids that God has entrusted to this community. So if you're looking for a way to connect, I would love to have you go to the connect table and say, I can be one of those two volunteers. I will help raise up the next generation of Christ followers. That is deeply sacred, beautiful work. But when we designed RCC Kids, we said, look, this is going to work for kids from six weeks old-ish. Um, we're still trying to open up that nursery. That'll be classroom number five. Um, we're just still trying to get that back up post-COVID. But essentially for right now, one year until fifth grade. But if you're wondering, I've noticed, John Michael's noticed, our elders have noticed, that we have kids that are starting to age out of that. 
which is why the other half of Dan's responsibility during his residency is devoted to launching a middle school ministry, which is an essential step for us as a church to be able to have a place for those sixth through eighth graders who are going through what I remember as a very tricky stage of life. Um, And as the father of somebody who will step into that before too long, I'm like, man, I want all the help I can get. And I know some of you have experience with middle school ministry, and some of you, your heart beats for that kind of thing. And just know there's going to be a lot of space for you to live that out around here. Right now, while we're doing all that, we're still going to keep our eye on mission. And again, I'm not going to give you the laundry list of everything we do. I just want to highlight two things. Because one of the things that I got to do this time, about this time, last year, was go down to the Dominican Republic to spend a couple of days with one of our ministry partners down there that does a lot of uh, pastor training, both for Dominican and Haitian pastors, and spent a couple days investing and seeing what they were doing and all of that. Um, But on the last morning, or the next to the last morning, um, we went to Encuentro Beach, which is on sort of the north coast of uh, the DR, and it's this like super well-known surfing beach, and um, I did not surf because I didn't want to badly injure myself, Um, but I watched others surf. And I just watched them kind of floating out there and waiting to catch a wave. And I started praying at that point. I'm like, God, I'm asking, and this is very Henry Blackaby, but I'm asking that you would show me what are the waves that you want Restoration City Church to, you know, to, to catch? What are you doing in the life of our church? Not me sitting back with a whiteboard being like, here's what I think we should do, but God, just show me what you are doing. And it feels like two things have really risen to the top of that. It's not the only two things we're doing at all, but two things that should be on all of our radar screens. Number one, our, our schools, right? There's a new principal here at Gunston. Um, she is deeply interested in collaborating with us, and the door is wide open for us to partner with this community. And we want to be able to step into that. At the same time, through one of the members of our church, the doors are wide open at GW Middle School, right down Mount Vernon, like a mile into Delray. By the way, part of the reason we're so passionate about starting a middle school ministry is because we meet in a middle school and we have a relationship with the middle school. As we connect with families here, we don't want them to come to church and then be like, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, we don't actually have anything for your middle schooler. That would feel weird. That would feel unintentional. That would feel like a not a small oversight. So we're trying to create a place where we're like, yeah, come on in. We've got room. We've got space. We want you to be involved. Right? I, I have started to unapologetically pray that the Lord would draw more and more people to this church who have a heart to invest in schools because I'm telling you, our church could literally double between now and Christmas and we would have no trouble keeping everybody busy just through these two school partnerships alone. The need is tremendous. And it's one of the waves that I see God asking, inviting our church to connect. The other is this project of resettling refugees, right? Many of you know that over the course of this spring, we had the privilege of partnering with another ministry to resettle a refugee family from Afghanistan. And there's been a team of people that have served that family so 
well. Um, over the last couple of weeks, that team had started the process of saying, hey, God, would you like us to do that again? Would you like us to serve a second family when the brother of one, the family that we're already serving, brother is now coming to the States. In fact, we'll be arriving next weekend. And we just sort of said on behalf of the church, we're like, yes, we are in. So again, if you got that weekly email, there's an Amazon wish list that you can start to buy things. If you want to help move a family in this Saturday, go to the Connect table. They will give you information about that. It'll be easy for you to sign up online this week for that opportunity. If you happen to be the owner of a pickup truck, not looking directly at you, John Hardy, uh, but just thinking pickup truck kind of people, um, they would love help moving furniture. There are ample opportunities for us to serve this family, right? Presence, formation, mission. A people who know how to linger with God, who know how to attend to the inner reality of their soul, and who know how to make a tangible difference in the life of middle school communities and refugee families. It's kind of one of those moments where I'm like, I don't know what that does for you, but that gets, I'm in. I mean, like, I want to give my life to that. I want to lead my family into living that way. And I would love to think that a lot of us would be along for the ride. But it really does bring us back to the question I asked you the first week, right? Rewind a minute. Are you in? I understand the first week I asked that kind of theoretically. Are you in for a life of dependence on God? Are you in for a life of prayer? And Jesus, though, wants us to wrestle with that question, not just theoretically, but personally. Jesus asks each of us this question, are you in spiritually? John chapter 11, as he shows up at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he has a conversation in which he says words that have become famous throughout the history of the church. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die... Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks, do you believe this? Are you in for a life of faith, of trust, of dependence? But Jesus doesn't just ask it spiritually. He also asks it practically. Matthew chapter 9 is one of many examples. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. This is Jesus' question to Matthew, one of the most unlikely of disciples, but it's his question, will you go with me? Will you be where I am? Will you do what I do? Will you live life the way that I live? Jesus is not just looking for intellectual assent from a distance. He's not just looking on people who are willing to sign off on a doctrinal statement or be like, you go, son of God. He's looking for people who will get up and follow him into the future that he's writing for their lives. Are you in for that? My genuine prayer for today is that you would sense God inviting you into something specific and personal. Sometimes vision series can feel like I'm selling a program or selling an agenda, trying to build goodwill before a congregational meeting or, or, or whatever. That's not my heart for today. 
my heart for today is that you would encounter God in such a way that you would feel Him starting to stir in your soul something that in all honesty probably scares you a little bit, but also thrills your soul where you're like, I'm terrified of going after that. But man, wouldn't it be great if God could use me in that way? I I don't want you to hear a laundry list of needs from me. I want you to hear a whisper from the Spirit of God. He says, here's what I have for you. Here's what I'm inviting you into. But people often ask me like, yeah, that's great, John, but what is the church's greatest need? And I thought I'd just give you two very succinct answers to that question, right? Not going to be a sign-up sheet involved or anything like that, but people ask, what does Restoration City need most? How can you contribute here? Number one, we need people who are so excited about where we are going, so excited about living at the intersection of presence, formation, and mission, that they are willing to invite friends into the journey with them. Right? And I'm thinking primarily of friends who don't have a church home, either because they don't follow Jesus, they've been burned by the church, they just haven't found a church home, or they're just floating on the edges of a church home. Because we need more people to do what I believe God is calling us to do. One of the things, again, back to Encuentro Beach. This is like a year in the making. I'm saying right now we are a relatively small church, but as I've talked to leader after leader after leader after leader here, we're a small church with a fairly big vision. I I haven't encountered anybody who's like, man, I think RCC is good. Let's just kind of like make ourselves comfortable with where we're at, right? I know the way you guys think. It's the way I think. I think it's why God has us in the room together. You're like, all right, I love the fact that we're doing a second refugee family. What would it look like for a third and a fourth? What would it look like for that to be a regular rhythm where we are routinely doing that? Right? Well, nobody's content to just be like, hey, Gunston, looks like you got a lot of problems. Good luck. We're like, no. Wouldn't it be amazing if this school couldn't fathom operating without the sea of volunteers that come from Restoration City Church? Wouldn't it be amazing if in the city of Alexandria, they're like, what the heck is going on with Restoration City Church? Those people are flooding our schools to love our faculty. Like, they're tutoring people left around. Who are these people? Where are they coming from? Why are they doing this? But look, guys, the same crew of us, we can't do it all. Right? We can't keep saying, like, all right, we're going to do kids and then run over school and this. We just need to add more people. And sure, we send mailers out and we'll do ads on Instagram and Google's a really good friend because people are like church in Crystal City or whatever. That's great. That's awesome. But I don't think Jesus called us to be his ambassadors and his witnesses and was like, yeah, don't worry, but 21st century, you can just dial that one back and subcontract it to Google. Just work on your search engine optimization and you'll be exempt from the Great Commission. No, he's like, no, I still thought you were going to do it person to person, neighbor to neighbor. That's what we need. People who are so excited about where we're going that they're willing to invite friends into the journey with them. We also need people who are so excited about where we are going that they're willing to give generously and regularly to invest in this work of making disciples. Again, I'm going to say more about this tonight. This is just a little appetizer, but the good news, praise God, I'm so grateful to be able to tell you that we've gotten to a financially stable place post-COVID. COVID was brutal for us, but by the grace of God, we're doing okay. 
But I also want you to know we're doing okay largely because our team has been really, really, really good at controlling expenses, right? We really haven't seen much of a significant increase in our monthly giving. In fact, it's still not back to where we were pre-COVID. I know that many of you are already giving regularly to the church. I might invite you to consider doing what Laura and I do this time of year, right? Um, where we pull back and we kind of say, hey God, how have our circumstances changed over the last year? And then we adjust our giving every, every year, right? That's meaningful for us because one of the downsides of setting up a recurring gift online is you just kind of like set it and forget it. And we like to come back once a year and be like, God, what are you asking us to do? Right? So I'd invite some of you into that work, but I also need you to know like from the elders, our plan is not to see if we can get those who are already giving to give even more. Right? There's many of us who have started to attend the church over the summer, spring, and I totally get it. You're going to attend for a while before you start giving, 100%. I would do the exact same thing. But if you're at the place where you've made this your home, then it would be so helpful in where we're trying to go if you would go online and set up some kind of recurring gift, whether that's once a month or every two weeks when you get paid or whatever. Because there are so many things in front of us that we could see, we want to make happen. And right now we just don't have the resources to do that. So, so that is what we need most. But what you need most, what you need most is to hear that still small, small voice of God. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to stand with me now if you would. And in just a minute, we're going to take communion together. But for now, I just want to invite you to stand in the presence of God. Maybe even open your hands just as a sign of surrender. And ask God to show you what He is inviting you to do in this moment. Holy Spirit, I'm asking that in the next few minutes, you would do something significant in each of our lives. For some of us, God, we need you to come and fight against guilt and shame. Because we can't believe that you would have something for us. Because we're so horrified by what we've done, how we've lived, who we were, the mistakes we've made. 
Jesus, would you come and remind us of your work on the cross? Please, Lord God. But Jesus, I also ask that by the power of your spirit, you would whisper into our souls. Not about church programs and needs, but about your call on our life. What you're asking, where you're leading. And we just say now what we sang earlier. I surrender all. Jesus, help us to live that out. I pray in your name.